This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Factor. If you want to eat better this year and are looking for fast, healthy, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to eat and easy on your budget, Factor is the perfect solution. Head to factormeals.com slash talk. TV50 and use code TALKTV50 to get 50% off your first month's order and 20% off your next month. That's factormeals.com slash TV50 and use code TV 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential radio talk show about television that will devote this week's program to the memory of William Shallert. William Shallert, the actor most of you know as Patty Duke's dad, Nancy Drew's dad, Gidget's dad, Dobie Gillis's teacher, and the Admiral on Get Smart. In addition to the four iconic television roles that we just mentioned, William Shallert also appeared in more than 100 motion pictures, including Speedway, Lonely Are the Brave, Charlie Varick, The Incredible Shrinking Man, and Recount, plus countless other television shows over the past six decades, from Maverick, Perry Mason, Bewitched, and the original Star Trek, to such recent shows as Two Broke Girls in 2014. I had a slight personal connection to William Shallert in that one of my sisters taught two of his granddaughters when they were in grammar school up in San Francisco. And as a result of that connection, I was fortunate enough to have the occasion to speak to Bill both on and off the air on several occasions over the past few years. We will play highlights of those conversations as part of our program tonight. And among other things, we will talk about Bill's film and TV career, his work with the Screen Actors Guild, his skill as a pianist, and his early career on stage with the Circle Theater in Los Angeles. We will begin with a clip that originally aired in July 2013 in which we asked Bill a couple of questions about Maverick because that's how you and I reconnected. We re-reconnected through... Oh, yeah, Jen, the Jenny Hill journey. And you were in virtually every scene with James Garner. Huh. Yeah, I, you know, I, I do remember I played her accompanist, I think. Yeah. But um, I don't know whether I actually played the piano for the, for the show. Probably not. I mean, they generally would have somebody dub in for me, but I uh, I know I had an episode of Lawman where I played the piano a lot, and I, I recognize I mean, the two pieces I played were by Chopin, mm-hmm. and they were pieces that I had played, so but I also noticed that they uh, when they got to the end of, of a passage, they tacked on a little ending that I would never have done and that was not Chopin at all but, uh, but you know, that was for their purposes, it was useful 
So uh, I don't know whether I whether I actually played for for Jenny Hill or not. Well, you, regardless of whether you you actually played when when you filmed that episode, I I understand that you originally wanted to pursue a career in music and not necessarily acting. Yeah, uh, I that's true. Originally, I, I went to UCLA uh, at a time when Arnold Schoenberg, the very modernist composer, was teaching there uh, to the tail end of his career. He what they called atonal music, no key, twelve-tone mm-hmm. uh, rows, all of the the keys between middle C and the C above it, black and white, were part of that. He he would he said you should set up a, a theme mm-hmm. which which used all twelve notes in one way or another. They didn't have to be by themselves as a melody, but they also had to be in there some way as as harmony or something like that. And uh, it had a major effect on mu- music in the 20th century. I mean, he did that early on, and he had two very important pupils, Alban Berg and, uh, I think, Franz Webern. Mm-hmm. And they, they were very good composers, but very advanced, uh, very hard to listen to, quite frankly. And Schoenberg's music was very hard to listen to, in my opinion. I mean, I studied with, but they, but that that wasn't what he taught. I was admitted to the graduate seminar in composition because he'd heard me playing the piano uh, upstairs in the in the education building at UCLA, and uh, what I was doing was transcribing orchestral stuff that I wanted to learn to play, and uh, so he was impressed by that. And his uh, teaching assistant told me that's why he invited me into the class. But I found out, quite frankly, that I could not do that fast enough to make a living. Now, that's the simplest way to put it. You know, it's like if you're if you want to be a sprinter, you basically have to be able to run very mm-hmm. fast. Before you have there's no training for that. You just has to be built into you. The same thing applies to composing. You got to be able to hear it in your head and then uh, a famous story of Mozart who hadn't written written out a score for the uh, the parts for the orchestra for the overture to the marriage of Figaro, and uh, the night before they said we we need the parts. He said, "Oh, all right," and he sat down and wrote out the parts. He didn't write out the score. He just wrote out the individual parts. <laughs> well, that's amazing. But he did that out of his head because that's where they were stored, and he could hear them properly up there, and he knew what they were. Well, that's something I couldn't do. And uh, other people uh, around me in the class were able to do something equivalent to that. They weren't Mozart, but I mean, they, they could do that sort of So I just, I, I realized, well, this is not going to be for me. I, I, the way I put it was, I can't do this fast enough to make a living. So so I, I got out of that and somehow stumbled into acting. That was more or less accidental, but... Uh, but that's, I got started acting at UCLA. And then, if I've got the chronology right, sometime after UCLA, you, you started one of the first uh, small theater groups in Los Angeles, correct? That, th- that had been started a year before while I was still in the Army, but they were reconstituting it. It was called the Circle Players, mm-hmm. Circle Theater. And I, was, I auditioned for them. And uh, they took me on just before they got started. And they were very happy to have me, they said. I, I was very inexperienced as an actor. All I, I'd just done a few scenes at UCLA. But I, I never actually formally studied acting at that point. But I did take a, 
a directing course. Boris Segal and I were both in this directing class. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, a good friend for a time. Yeah, that's uh, Katie. That's Katie's dad, folks. For uh, for people who may not recognize the name, but Boris Segal. Oh yeah, he was Katie's Katie's dad, mm-hmm. right? Katie Segal's father. He was a, a very successful director, both of uh, television and and of feature pictures. I worked for him in Europe on a on a picture, what was made for television, Ike: The War Years, mm-hmm. was with Robert Duvall. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Boris was was very talented, but uh, tragically he he was killed on location by accident. Uh, walked into the back end of a helicopter. It's really terrible. Gosh. But yeah, nasty. Uh, but any, anyway, the uh, we we took this class. It was not in acting; it was in directing. But uh, Ralph Frude, who was at UCLA at the time, he was teaching there. The, the Freud Playhouse is there now. It looks like it ought to be Freud, but he said, "Oh no, we're the, we're the British side of the family." <laughs> <laughs> so I said, "Good." But anyway, that Ralph Freud took an interest in me. Mm-hmm. Part part of the reason people like that would take an interest in me was that my father was the drama editor of the Los Angeles Times. Edwin Shallot. About forty years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Edwin. Yeah. Edwin Shallot. And so people in the business knew his name, certainly. They were very concerned about his opinions of the movies they made. And uh, he and, and my mother used to write for the fan magazine. So I, I was sort of connected in Hollywood. Or at least I had a, a recognizable name. Mm-hmm. You know, that's as important as getting started in, in politics. Well, yeah, if, if, if it gets your foot in the door, that's all good. And then if you've got the talent, then you will, you, you will take it from there. Yeah, that, that was the idea, I think. And it worked out that way for me pretty well. I think people felt a little relaxed when they heard what my name was. I don't know whether they thought my father was going to help them or not. Certainly in television, there wouldn't have been any help because he didn't write about TV. But, mm-hmm. but uh, anybody in the movie business knew the name. So it was just, you know, it was an, an open sesame for doorways that otherwise might have been closed. And that applied even on the level of this small theater. They, they were impressed that my father was a critic and that he would be coming maybe to to review the plays they did. As a matter of fact, he rarely did that because they, they were too small, but once in a while he saw one. Uh, but And they, they, had, they had other reviewers down there who were helpful to the theater. We were the beginning of a, of a small, of the sort of pre-professional uh, small theater business. And we were, it was called the Circle Theater because we did theater in the round. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did that because they were doing that at UCLA when we were in school there. During the war years, they stopped doing uh, large-scale productions in Royce Hall. It was a that was a huge place, you know. Mm-hmm. It did about 2,000 people or something, well over 1,000 anyway. And uh, so they had a big stage, and it took a lot of lumber and a lot of electricity. And during the war years, those things were restricted or limited. So uh, they, they started to use a classroom, Royce Hall 170. That's where I, the first time I acted was in there. And I, uh, I'd run into a, an actress uh, who whom I had written about when I worked on the school newspaper. And uh, she 
she asked me if I would come and read for a play she was doing. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. I don't know, she, she'd heard about my, me kidding around and figured, well, he sounds like an actor, but, but I don't know why she, she thought I might be a, an actor. Maybe Ralph Froude was the guy who did that. He might have warned, not warned her. <laughs> he didn't warn her about anything in regarding to me. But he might have said something about about the fact that I was Edwin Shellard's son, and I was also I had done some stage appearances in kind of funny stuff that a friend of mine and I used to write. And so I think maybe you know once once I was working on the school newspaper, I got to know a lot of people, and and uh, I got to do a number of things that that otherwise I probably wouldn't have done. And uh, so the, the result of it was that I, I went, uh, I did read for the play she did. It was a play called Volpone, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a, an adaptation done by a fellow named Stefan Zweig. So it took a big, cumbersome, long-winded sort of play from the Elizabethan times and, and pared it down to a manageable size. Uh, you probably wishing that Stefan Zweig was editing my remarks. Right? No, 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 not not at all. Because you you've you've just set up my next question. If I remember correctly, uh, Bill, in that play, Volpone, you play. I mean, even though you were a very young man at the time in your twenties, you played an eighty-two-year-old man at the time. Yeah, eighty-something. I always said I, I, I've said various things: eighty-two, eighty-four, whatever. He was old anyway, mm-hmm. and Ralph Fruit had made me up. He, he he was very good with makeup, and he he had made me up for the part with a. He gave me a long hooked nose, and and he exaggerated my own nose in that way, and then and and a, a sort of like green makeup on my face mm-hmm. that looked like I was rotting away or or coming to the end of my life, and I played. Uh, it was a comic comic play, and so. I was funny in it, uh, but I was also kind of very mean. Uh, it was uh, about a, gr- a group of very avaricious people who were trying to get Volpone's treasure, they thought. They thought he was dying. He put word out that he was dying, and, and so the people who lived in the, in the town where he was, where he was operating, uh, thought that they would be able to get his money if they made friends with him before he died, that he would leave them the money. So that was the whole idea of the thing. And uh, I was willing to sell my son, uh, who, his name was Leone. Mm-hmm. They were all named after animals or birds. And uh, so I, I did it, and uh, I guess it was fairly successful. I got invited out to 20th Century Fox uh, by the, the head talent scout there. I, that's not so remarkable, I mean, I guess, but, but it, I was the only person in the cast who was asked to come to the studio to meet with him. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. We are the Real Brady Bros. Brady Brothers from the TV show Brady Bunch. I'm Barry Williams. And I'm Christopher Knight. I played Greg. And uh, who were you again? I played Peter. We've decided that we're going to do a podcast around episodes of the Brady Bunch. We're going to use it as a prism to look back to our experience doing the show and why the Brady Bunch is still popular. Have a sunshine day. We are the real Brady Bros. One more item if you want to eat better this year. 
Our friends at Factor are the perfect solution. They have more than 35 fresh, pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and Vegan, and Veggie that are restaurant quality with such premium ingredients as filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus, and which are all ready to eat and ready to eat with no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup necessary. Check it out yourself by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV 50. Astrid and I recently checked out some of Factor's keto selections, including their roasted tomato and feta cavatappi with broccoli and red peppers, and the garlic and herb roasted mushrooms, while their three bean chili with quinoa is just the right size for lunch. We also enjoyed their chocolate banana smoothies, which is just one of the more than 60 healthy and nutritious add-on options Factor provides that will help you fuel up and feel good all day, while best of all, Factor meals are less expensive than takeout. Head to factormeals.com slash talktv50 and use code talktv50 to get 50% off your first month's order and 20% off your next month. Factor Meals is celebrating Earth Day all throughout the month of April, so be sure to look for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Factor Meals is the perfect solution for fast, upscale, ready-to-eat meals. That's factormeals.com slash talktv50 and use code talktv50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Ed Robertson, hoping you're enjoying this encore presentation of TV Confidential. We'll be back with a brand new edition of the program next week. We're, we're talking the 40s right now, but even 60, you know, 60 years ago, I mean, it, it, it is just as competitive. It was just as competitive back then as it is today. I mean, you know, there there are there are scouts or there are casting directors who who who, who attend you know, live theater performance, always looking for new talent, and not everyone's going to get the invitation bill, and you did. Uh, well, it's true. And I always, if people ask me how, to, how you get into the business, I say, work in a small theater. Mm-hmm. Even if you have to build it yourself, because that's the way almost everybody, that, that's one place where you can work without being a member of the union yet, and, and where you don't have to be paid much money, if any. And, in fact, you may have to put your own money in it to, to make it work. But... But that's if people want to do theater and want to act and want to create that kind of stuff on stage, that's the way in which they generally do it. They do it in in a small off Broadway theater in New York or off off Broadway, and out here in California, there's a whole there's a whole slew of them now. At the time when we started the Circle, uh, that was the only one in town that was doing something like that. We there were other sort of like I don't know what you'd call them uh, showcase theaters. Mm-hmm. For people, but but they weren't serious about what they were doing in the same way that we we presumed we were. We we tried to be. So when we did it, we were intending to to do something really really serious in the theater. Of course, that was after I got out of school. But the same thing applied at UCLA. Ralph Fruit had been a professional actor, and mm-hmm. so when he did something, it had that imprimatur on it. And uh, so I did get called out to twentieth and. The guy who called me out there uh, was the head talent scout. Ivan Kahn was his name. Mm-hmm. And I went to see him, and he said, uh, Well, Bill, we uh, we saw you the uh, other night in the, in that play, uh, Pony, and it was very impressive. And I was thinking, Really? Because <laughs> I, I had all these pounds of makeup on my face, uh, hook nose and green makeup and 
I was 80-some years old, and I, you couldn't really tell what I looked like from it or who I was or anything. But uh, he said, now, Tom Kelly here, our coach, would uh, would like to just uh, work with you a little bit in the other. So I went in the other room with this guy, Tom Kelly. And I don't remember what we did. We probably read something. All I can remember is he, he said, when I was reading things, he said, don't move your hands so much. So I don't know. That was the only direction I got from but I figured, well, that, maybe that's good advice. I don't know. When I got back in the room, Ivan said, well, Tom seems to think you're okay. He says, what's your status with the draft? This was in 1940, the beginning of 1943. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, I've got, I've got maybe another month or so before we get called up. He said, aha. Well, be sure to look us up after the war. So then I realized, well, it didn't matter how much green makeup I had or how much uh, fake noses and all of that. And even I was playing an 82-year-old person, which I would not be asked to do on camera mm-hmm. uh, at that time, anyway. They were just looking for a warm male body. Yeah. In here because the, the, all of the very few young guys were available. So they were willing to take a chance on me, but accept it <laughs> since I was going to go so soon. Uh, I said, look us up after the war was the was the key to the interview. Well, but anyway, it was encouraging. And when I, I, I spent most of the war training to be a fighter pilot, I never never had to go overseas, but I, I learned how to fly and, and other things. But sometimes we'd sit around and talk about what we were going to do after the war. And uh, I, I, I said a couple of times, I remember, I think maybe I'm going to try to try acting. So there was a guy from Louisiana who was uh, in the barracks with us, and he would say, "Yeah, shall." He used to call me "shall," <laughs> yeah, shall, uh, like that kind of very, uh, you know, mm-hmm. very dismissive of the idea. <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, I, I will." Uh, Old Walt that was his name. Nice, nice guy. Good pilot. Very good pilot. He flew later for Pan American Airlines mm-hmm. all over the world. So anyway, there's a lot of stuff that hangs on to anything I start to say. That's no, right. hey, that that that's okay. Look, Bill turned 90 last year. So when you've got nine decades of experience, Bill, I'm glad it comes naturally to you because you're living, breathing history. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll be 91 in, in about three, four months now in July. So. Yeah. That was a compliment, by the way. Yeah, th- thank you. <laughs> You're listening to a conversation with actor William Schellert that originally aired in July 2013. We'll play more of our conversation after this quick time out here on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk tvconfidential.net talk at tvconfidential.net you can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential x.com forward slash tvconfidential or at tvconfidential on instagram and if you're listening to us on the tv confidential podcast please be sure to hit the subscribe button This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415 
888-786-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.